the arrival of the plague in the mid-1300s radically changed medieval Germany. The peasants, who were the foundation of the social system, were decimated between the arrival of the plague and the start of the Reformation over 170 years later. Ironically, the plague opened up incredible opportunity for many of the surviving peasantry with saleable skills. But as large groups of peasants moved to the cities to become bankers, traders, and other merchants, the peasantry that remained in the old feudal system became more and more burdened as the lower nobility sought to create laws and systems that would keep the peasants tied to the land and unable to advance in society. These peasants, who were being horribly mistreated, began to make demands for justice. The most famous demands were the Twelve Articles of the Schwabian Peasants, written in 1525. Since the Twelve Articles were promoted as a Christian document, it caught the attention of Martin Luther. He was not impressed. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yeagley, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a discussion on the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. Okay, well, we have... Uh, we have spent quite a bit of time talking, and we're going to continue to talk a little bit more about this this build-up to the Peasants' Revolt. There's social upheaval, social upheaval happening in the early 1500s. Uh, we've talked about Franz von Sickingen and Thomas Munzer. They're the respective leaders of the Knight and Peasant Revolts. So, in our last episode, we spent most of the time talking about the Knights' Revolt, and we took a little bit of time to go through the 12 articles of the Schwabian peasants. Uh, and that's partly because this, that, that document, that, that 12 articles, uh, did a lot to explain the societal issues that were behind these revolutions. And as we went through them in the last episode, we very encouraged in understanding what their issues were. So in this episode, we're going to kind of surprise ourselves by looking at how Martin Luther critiqued these 12 articles to our 21st century democratic ears. Sounded very just peasantry, very ordinary, very common. Yeah, yeah. Not very special, but he understands as he evaluates them what happens if you confuse the language of the gospel with the language of the ordering of society. Yeah, and that's sort of, as as we go through this, as we go through the 12 articles and Luther's response to the 12 articles, it's going to be very important to sort of keep that in mind, that he's trying to keep both of these separated. And sometimes this is considered uh, the naivety of Martin Luther, not understanding the theological proposals that he has for the Christian freedom we have through the gospel, that we're no longer slaves to anyone. Uh, no one in this world can call us... Um, anything other than child of God, that this that this theological treatise that we hear about in the Christian uh, freedom that we have, well, what does it look like as it starts to be influenced in society? That's, that's the struggle. So, but before we dive into the 12 articles, we're going to take a minute just to kind of review the Knights' Revolt, since the Knights' situation is impacting the abuse of the peasants and why the peasants are are rising up. One one last thing before we go into that that yes. I would like to say is that you know we, as as I have dug into this and kind of learned more about the peasants' revolt and the position of the peasants and Luther's response and all of that, this this particular part of Luther's life and I, I and I think even as we go forward, we're going to see that Luther is talking to exactly the types of things we're dealing with today. This is really where Luther, the things Luther is dealing with in this messy world with all these different 
religious ideas that are all fighting or you know trying to get uh, uh, some sort of primacy mm-hmm. uh, and and, uh, and then have you know the the societal implications and all these things coming together these are still the issues we deal with today and it's actually as we go into this next phase of Luther's life this this next the next 30 years or so we're going to be dealing with a lot of uh, uh, what Luther has to say is whether we agree or not, he's still talking to exactly what we're dealing with today. Yeah, the interaction between justice, society, and the gospel, the role that the church has in shaping the local society, and in, in what way do the demands of the individual in society speak to how the community is organized? Yeah. We're going to see this. Now, as we do this, we're looking at Luther's response to the 12 Articles. The document we're looking at is titled uh, Admonition to Peace, a reply to the 12 Articles of the Peasants in Swabia. Right. And so uh, you, you wanted to get into the Knights Revolt? Let's, let's yeah. take a minute and go through the Kinda Knights Revolt. Kind of remind ourselves where we came from. So, so the Knights Revolt, you sort of have to go back in time to about, really, it's like a hundred years before uh, in the 1400s. In the 1400s, Feudal yeah. system is breaking down. Uh, re- feudal system, that relationship between the Lord and the peasant revolved around three things. One, the Lord who owned the land. Uh, the second one was the vassal uh, who was given possession of the land by the Lord. Now, the vassal could be like a knight or somebody else. A baron. A baron, you know, but you had the Lord who was the high. And then he, that vassal let's say it's a knight or a, a a baron or whoever, he would be the lord for the people below him. It was sort of like this... this it's a pyramid scheme. Yeah, it's, it's a pyramid. <laughs> exactly. Now, the vassal would promise to fight for the lord if needed. Uh, and, and so kind of the, the trade-off is the vassal gets the land, but if the lord ever needs an army, he can call upon the vassal to bring it up. Right, right. And then the vassal, like the higher level vassals, like the barons and the so forth. The privy council and that sort of thing. They're like counselors. They're like advisors to the lord and, and so forth. So, so lord to vassal to the fife, which was the land itself. And then the people who worked on the land, they didn't own the land. They worked on the land in service to the lord. Yeah, that's the peasantry. The peasants. Now, in all of this exchange is also the Catholic Church that would own huge pieces of land. And there were bishops and cardinals that would act both in their leadership of the church, but also in their leadership as lords of the land. So they were, they were political entities they were, and religious entities, these, these cardinals and bishops and so forth. It was, so th- that same pyramid scheme that we were talking about with the lords and, and so forth was going on with the Catholic Church. And the, the reason I think of it as a pyramid scheme is the man at the top, succeeds because of the people at the bottom and as the people at the bottom from the black plague get killed off by huge numbers the burden to be able to hold up the guy on the top is now dependent on fewer and fewer people at the bottom now what yeah what that ended up doing as the as the black plague the black plague came into europe in about 1345 1347, 12 trading ships docked in the Sicilian port of Messina and brought the plague to Europe. So 1347, and give you an idea, you know, 1347 was the first time the plague hit Europe and it it kept coming in waves until like the mid 1700s. So there was, there was roughly 400 years 
uh, or early 1700s of of this this waves of death and it was just wiping out huge numbers of the peasants now so remaining peasants who are able to move off the land they'll become merchants and artisans they move into the big cities to sell their goods and services cities like leipzig gain in importance in their role in the trade routes becomes very difficult for knights to make a living off of the few remaining serfs on their property. They respond by capturing and holding cities and princes hostage for ransom. The princes respond by making it illegal for the knights to engage in private warfare. That is warfare that engaged... Uh, private warfare is warfare that uh, benefited the private interests of a knight rather than benefited the whole community. So what's wild about that... I mean, these are, these knights are almost acting like terrorists in a way. I mean, they're... They're, they're warlords that are succeeding through uh, kidnapping and other things, creating um, essentially a new economy yeah. that they can do. But you keep hurting people long enough... It gets back at you. Yeah, what, what's basically happening is, again, you know, the, the peasantry is dying off. The the knights, who were the lowest level of the lords, they were the, the lowest level of the nobility. They can't burden the people above them. Right, and so... and they and So, so they have to burden the people below. And they have... Yeah, and well, what they end up doing is they come up with this idea to burden the people above them by kidnapping them. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> work. Yeah, that didn't quite work out because the people above them said, you know, that's not a, that's against the law now. So in, in that background, the knights don't succeed. Uh, Luther's weighing all of the abuse that's happening between the lords and the peasants. And today we're just going to uncover Luther's first thoughts on the subject of revolution through our look at the admonition to peace. So the admonition to peace, like we mentioned before, was a response to the 12 articles of the peasants in Schwabia. So it's about the peasants' revolt, but it also gets into that whole context for revolt in general. Right. And so if you want a review of the the 12 articles, I think we covered that in 31, the last episode. Mm-hmm. So um, to us, at least like like Evan said earlier, to our ears, the the require what the peasants were asking for really sounds reasonable. Number one, the ability to call their own pastor. Uh, they wanted to use tithes to pay for the pastor and care for the poor. They wanted freedom to be able to read the scriptures without uh, the. Uh, uh, ruler telling them what it says. So uh, a little quote from the uh, 12 articles, it says, therefore it agrees with scripture that we are free and will be so. It is not our intention to be entirely free. God does not teach us to live without rulers. So it's, again, it really sounds nor- like, gee, that sounds reasonable. That sounds like something we could be on Part of this with. is it changes the um, authority of the ruler is based on the consent of the governed rather than the ruler requiring the assent of the people they govern. Okay. So it's like, bottom up, you are above us because we tell you you are above us, versus I'm above you because I am. Yeah, yeah. you can sort of see the the, the first seeds of the Declaration of Independence, the first seeds of the Constitution in this. It's sort of... Just that whole democratic principle that the government rules through the authority of the people. Right, right. Right. This is, of course, this is 250 years before the 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 uh, Declaration of Independence in the U.S. But this is you can sort of see those those first seeds coming here. Um, they also wanted the ability to hunt, fish, and gather firewood from the forest without having to pay a tax. There's other articles. Again, you can look back at them near the end of episode 31. We go through them. The so, 12th article is the one that's important for yeah, us right that, now. That's really important uh, because what they write is it is our conclusion and final opinion that if one or more of the articles set forth here is not in agreement with the word of God we shall withdraw such an article. So they've placed as the 
the lens through which you can read the authority of these 12 articles is, does it agree with Scripture? And and in the opening section of the admonition, Luther applauds them for using Scripture and for allowing themselves to be corrected, but he's suspicious. He says, quote, If this offer to be corrected is only a pretense and a show, then without doubt it will accomplish very little, or in fact it will contribute to their great injury and eternal ruin. He's suspecting that they put this last article in there about being ready to be corrected by Scripture to give the cloak of uh, righteousness to their task. Right, right. And uh, we'll see that, that he wasn't off base very far from that. So, but let's, so after, and let's go through what Luther is, is talking about here. So after he addresses the general concerns, like the, uh, about the 12 articles, he turns his attention and he spends quite a bit of time. As I was going through the, his Luther's admonition for peace, uh, he spends a lot of time really railing against the princes and the lords. Now, to give you a little flavor of what he says, he goes, We have no one on earth to thank for this disastrous rebellion except you, princes and lords, and especially you blind bishops and mad priests and monks, whose hearts are hardened even to this present day. It says you do nothing but cheat and rob people so you may lead a life of luxury and extravagance. And then during his address to the lords, he makes a general statement that the 12 articles are selfish, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But he says he generally agrees with the peasants. So there's this, okay, yeah, they, they might be, you know, they might be selfish, and we'll see why he says that they're selfish. But then he says, you know, but generally, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty right on with what they're saying. Then he speaks to the peasants directly. And he's most concerned because they are calling themselves a Christian association. And that's something I didn't realize is that the peasant, the peasants who were threatening rebellion called themselves literally the Christian association. And so they, they sort of, you know, line themselves up as, oh, we're the real Christians here. That way, if you agree with them, you're holy and righteous. And if you disagree with them, you must be a heathen and destroyed. Uh, they really create the, the division between either you're with us or you're an enemy. Yeah. And this then, for Luther, is running the risk of judgment by calling themselves Christians. Um, then if you're ready to be called a Christian, then ready to be evaluated and judged, not by your own selfish needs, but more by what the scripture calls Christians. What Luther goes into is he says, uh, again, he warns them that they're really risking the judgment of God. Uh, by by calling themselves this Christian association at the same time that they're threatening rebellion, yeah, because he's he says and he line, he lines that he backs himself up with do not take the Lord the name of your Lord in vain to use the name of the Lord to prop up your position but underneath your position has nothing to do with God right right uh, so he says uh, God uh, God Himself may destroy the rebellion and to guard the sanctity of His name is one for those who are going to misuse His name. God is going to punish them for misusing His name, so that His name alone will be kept holy. Their strategy with these unjust rulers um, is hard. It, it's it's not really going to work. But well, that actually was L- L- Luther. Luther is claiming that their strategy is. It's a poor strategy, even by the low bar. There's like two bars that he sets up in this thing. And he says the, the, the low bar, there's the high bar of the gospel, the high bar of, of God's word and God's, God's way of doing things. That's the high bar. He says, and there's the low bar of natural reason, the uh, low bar of, you know, hey, well, you know, what makes sense? What's logical? And he says, so they don't work on either level. He says they don't even reach that low bar of, of, 
of just natural reason. And, and the reason is natural reason speaks to how dangerous rebellion is. Yeah. The fact that the rulers are wicked and unjust does not excuse disorder and rebellion for the punishing of wickedness is not the responsibility of everyone, but of the worldly rulers who bear the sword. Luke. And so he's looking at it from the lens of vocation and he's saying to the peasants, it's not your vocation to overthrow wickedness. Right. He, he also goes on, he says, Luther says, you are making your, you're making yourselves your own judges and avenging yourselves. And that mention of the rulers who bear the sword, uh, cities in Germany uh, that had the authority to execute judgment against those who had done wrong, literally had a sword uh, from the emperor that would give them the authority in their local community to punish the wrongdoer. So when he's referring to the sword, he's not just making metaphorical reference to Romans 13. You could go to any city hall in Germany and you would find the sword, a literal sword that demonstrated that this city hall had the authority to punish the wrongdoer. Really? And so he's saying to the peasants, you don't have the sword. You don't have the sword. It's there in City Hall. And, and so the sword, the literal, that's a literal sword. Did, did yeah, you can go to Wittenberg and see their sword. Was it ever used? I, I don't... It, it looked I more not. like a saber. It didn't look like an executioner's sword. Yeah. Oh. It was more... I suppose in that way, it was a demonstration that this local community... So, But it was literally... The, he's, it was he's a, visual, a, a, a visual sword. A real sword you could touch and... So who has it. the sword? Well, he has the sword. Yeah. Okay. Not the peasants. So Luther goes on and he says, if your enterprise was right, then any man might become judge over another. So basically, might makes right. He's arguing, he says, you know, once once you go down the road of rebellion, now you're in the ro- realm of might makes right. You're in the realm of power rather than service. Yeah. You're no longer seeking to serve others in your community by helping their situation. You're working towards gaining your own power. Yeah, he goes on to say, Then authority, government, law, and order would disappear from the world. There would be nothing but murder and bloodshed. So this is the first... So that's the low bar evaluation. Does this work under natural law and reason? And he's saying, no. Rebellion doesn't work, period. You know, just, just take that off the table. And then he goes on, and Luther points out that they, uh, they've they ca- caused themselves far more problems because they chose to call themselves a Christian association. So once they call themselves Christian, now they don't need to only measure up to the low bar, but to the higher bar of Christ's teaching. Right. And so he goes, and this is, <laughs> he really does, and I, I, ha- I actually included a couple of rather long uh, quotes from Luther, but this is, He goes, listen then, dear Christians, to your Christian law. Your supreme Lord Christ, whose name you bear, says in Matthew 6, do not resist one who is evil. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If anyone wants your coat, let him have your cloak too. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other two. Do you hear this, O Christian Association? How does your program stand in light of this law? And then he says, I'll give you some illustrations of Christian law. Look at St. Peter in the garden. He wanted to defend Christ with the sword and cut off Malthus's ear. Malthus is ear. Tell me, did not Peter have the great right on his side? Was it not an intolerable injustice that they were going to take from Christ not only his property but his life? You have not yet suffered such a wrong, dear friends. But see what Christ does and teaches in this case? However great the injury was, he nevertheless stopped St. Peter, bade him to put away his sword, and would not allow him to avenge or prevent this injustice. In addition, he passed a sentence of death upon him, as though upon a murder, and said, He who takes the sword will perish by the sword. So Luther goes on. I mean, he really spends quite a bit of time railing against the uh, the, the peasants 
in this in this particular section, this whole, hey, you're going to call yourself Christian. Let me give you an idea of what it means to call yourself a Christian. And it goes on and gives a couple more examples. It says, in this, uh, uh, this is... Uh, in say this is not my intention to justify or defend the rulers and the intolerable justices which you suffer them. They are unjust and commit heinous wrongs against you. That I admit. If, however, neither side accepts instruction and you start to fight with each other, may God prevent it. I hope neither side will be called a Christian. And then, so he asked them to call themselves to something that's non-Christian. He says, but keep the name of Christian, I must consider you as enemies who want to do more to suppress my gospel than anything the Pope and Emperor have done to suppress it. His concern is if you're going to call yourself a Christian and have people think this is what Christian behavior is, then you've done injury to the gospel. So this is all part of the introduction. And near the end of the introduction, Luther makes what at least I think is a critical point. He says, your declaration that you teach and live according to the gospel is not true. One, uh, not one of the articles teaches anything of the gospel. Rather, everything is aimed at obtaining freedom for your person and for your property. To sum it up, everything is concerned with worldly and temporal matters. You want power and wealth so that you will not suffer injustice. The gospel, however, does not become involved in the affairs of this world, but speaks of our life in the world in terms of suffering, injustice, the cross, patience, and contempt for this life and the temporal wealth. So Luther is helping them understand the aim of the gospel is not found in the powers of this world. The, in fact, when the gospel is interacting with the powers of this world, we will experience suffering, injustice, the cross, patience, and contempt in this life. That's not the success of the gospel is if you've avoided any of those things. And so this, uh, you, you point out, is kind of like the theology of the cross and the Heidelberg Disputation, which we discussed back in episode five. Yeah, and, and it's basically, in, in, the, in the theology of the cross, what Luther is pointing out is that the gospel turns everything upside down. That, that, that um, when, when things are going well, when, when we're feeling, you know, uh, well, I, let me put it this way. The, the, the cross is is uh is the greatest proclamation christ's death on the cross is the greatest proclamation of god at work in this world and it's an act of injustice according to the measures of it, this world it's an act of injustice it's it's suffering it's pain it's all these things that that and so when when god is at work in this world things tend to look opposite of what we expect and that's my interpretation of the the theology of the cross is that that when when things that the gospel at work in this world is tends to be the opposite of what we expect, and what what his problem with with the the, the peasants here is they want they want success in this world to line up with the gospel. I think of it in some way is when you are experiencing injustice, the reaction of the peasants is to seek power to overthrow that injustice. Christ, when he experiences injustice, is acting. Um, against his own self-interest and in des instead desires to improve his brother. Yeah. And so Luther's pointing out the higher bar of Christianity is to be in service to others. And they're using their name, Christian Association, to serve their own interests. Right. Right. So let's take a beer break. Okay. Uh, what What do you have for us today? Is an old beer. Uh, old. The now this is a, the this is actually a German beer. 
Uh, we 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 had a a Japanese beer a few quite a few episodes ago. Now I was looking, and the next biggest country that's listening to the podcast are Germans. You know, Germans besides Michigan. Because, uh, yeah, besides the U.S. <laughs> yeah, so you have the U.S., which is by far the most, and then you have Japan, and then after that is Germany. So the Weihenstaufen Brewery, uh, from which the beer we have is a Hefeweiss beer that we have, uh, dates uh, back to 768. There's an abbey there, uh, and a document from that year refers to a hop garden in the area that was uh, had to pay a tithe to the monastery. So the, Then a brewery was yeah, licensed when? About 1040, I think, is roughly uh, in the city of Freising. Now, the, so was, that's down by Bavaria. And... Yeah, now that's actually, I think that was the Bishop Freising was his name. Anyway, the so you have the, the, the Freising, brewer, uh, the, the city of Freising authorized this brewery that was at the monastery in about 1040. And they've been continuously making beer ever since then. Now, what's interesting about these guys is um, they, they now are like one of the, they're, they're doing like cutting edge beer. Beer brewing, you know, uh, and and that's that's sort of they're affiliated with the local university, and they're actually they got cutting edge beer brewing equipment there, and now they're they're really so they're, they're not only the oldest, but they're also right there at the cutting edge. So the Technical University of Munich uses a state of the art production facility um, at the Weinstefener Brewery uh, to develop uh, new ways to brew beer. Yeah. Now the brewery produces a range of pale lagers and wheat beers, including the Weinstefener. Uh, Weiss beer, which we have today. It's a 5.4% alcohol by volume Weiss beer. Uh, Weiss beer is just kind of a wheat beer. You can get a wheat beer in a kind of filtered form. It'll be Cristal. And then an un, not Cristal like the champagne though, or unfiltered Hefe. And that's in America. Most people will know a wheat beer by the Hefe Weissen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've always, I like Hefe Weissen. Yes. Uh, it's a, they're nice, nice, um, the, the wheat gives it a nice smooth taste. I, I, I actually, mm-hmm. that's, it goes down nice and easy. It's got a very unique flavor to it. All Hefe Weissen's do. It's got a little bit of like a, a lemon flavor or something. Yeah. Orange. Yeah. And now this is a golden yellow wheat beer. Uh, it's got a nice kind of fine poured white foam and cloves. 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 That's that's what I taste. Yes. That, and I smell those cloves. It's mm-hmm. really good. Um, it, it's uh, very a little refreshing. bit of a banana flavor too. That's the sweetness. Yep. Yep. You can. I certainly can taste that. It's got a strong yeast taste to it as well. They say it goes with fish and seafood and uh, spicy cheese. This is all from their website. Veil sausage, of veal, course. Yeah. Veal, veal sausage. Veal. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. It's hard. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I'm 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 enjoying this. So this is a, a good. Now this one was brewed. As much as they're doing tech uh, tech stuff, they have uh, used. O- centuries-old brewing tradition, especially for their most well-known beers. So they're they're producing many new flavors and things like that, but they still have the old standby. And their bottle label says the world's oldest brewery. Um, just for kind of fair representation to those who dispute this, they say their license goes back to 1040. The Weitenberg Abbey, also in Bavaria, has had a brewery in operation since 1050, and they claim to be the oldest one. Um, I'm not sure why they're... Yeah, we don't Plains. want to get between them. No, but the, the, I'm sure they both make excellent beers. So this is this is a good beer. I'm enjoying it, and prost, prost. 
So we've looked at how Luther goes through the 12 articles, largely looking by his introduction of walking through the 12 articles, an admonition to the princes, then an admonition to the peasants. And then he starts going through the the actual 12 articles. Um, So the first one, calling your own pastor. That sounds... And paying about the tithe. And paying the tithe. Um, that sounds kind of normal to our ears. We would expect that in America. Absolutely. This is how we do our business here in the U.S. Each congregation can call its own pastor, at least inside the Lutheran church here in America. And we pay from our giving at the, and, you know, so this is, they're actually laying out exactly the way our churches are structured here in the U.S. today. Now, Luther disagrees, mostly because the possession of the parish belongs to the ruler. The ruler maintains the right to select who will benefit from the usage of these possessions when the ruler installs the pastor. And this is getting to what Luther understands the responsibility of the ruler in Germany is, is to not only preserve and protect the operation of the state through the law, but to make opportunity for the gospel to be shared. He sees this as the vocation of the ruler. And so Luther gets irritated when they take away from the vocation of the ruler the right of making sure the gospel's proclaimed. Well, and when I was reading Luther's writing on this, there was another component to this, which is that he f- owns the physical property. He owns the physical chapel. So it's he not just the, the metaphysics of vocation. It's actual physical property. It's actually the physical property that, and, and you know, who owns all the stuff that we're working with here? The ruler does. And so, you know, Who's going to use it? Who's going to live in the parsonage? Who's going to who's going to benefit from all this equipment that I put to, in place here for the proclamation of the gospel, whether it's the chalice or whatever else? You know, who's going to actually use my stuff to proclaim the gospel? And he says, the ruler that's the ruler's stuff. He gets to choose who uses it. He goes on to say, you speak in this article as though you were already lords in the land and had taken all the property of the rulers for your own and would be no one's subjects and would give nothing. Right. And, and so he's and really that's that's where he gets upset about the tithes. I guess he says that the tithes when they give the tithes, it goes to the ruler, the money goes to the ruler, and then the ruler pays. The ruler's one that pays the the pastor out of that. The ruler's the one that pays for the maintenance of the church. The ruler is so all the money goes to the, the all the tithes go to the ruler and then the ruler allocates it as he sees fit. And I think for Luther it's not kind of a fundamental theological thing that he's talking about then with your emphasis on who owns the land he says this just as the way the structure of society is working in germany right now and if they want to kind of call a pastor then they need to own the land that the church is in right and so that's when, when we're talking in the u.s you know the the, the congregation owns that land typically so he doesn't think that the calling of pastors and the establishment of bishops is divinely ordered to be only through the authority of the Lord of the land. But in Germany, in this case, since the Lord owns the land, he gets to do it. If there was another situation, there are free cities in Germany that uh, he and Bugenhagen will counsel on how to bring about uh, evangelical reforms in their cities. Those cities have different rights and and things like that. But specifically in Swabia, uh, where these peasants are, it's the Lord that gets to choose. Now, right. the third article states that all men are created free. And, you know, gee, once again, that sounds very reasonable to but my ears. once again, Luther disagrees. Quote, he says, You assert that no one is to be the serf of anyone else because Christ has made us all free. That is making Christian freedom completely a physical matter. So Luther then goes on, he says, This article, therefore, absolutely contradicts the gospel. 
It proposes robbery, for it suggests that every man should take his body away from his Lord, even though his body is the Lord's property. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> to us 21st century people, this is hard. It's hard to and to try to figure out Luther's defense of serfdom and slavery. I, I feel like this could be someone's dissertation on understanding Luther's view of slavery through his evaluation of serfdom. Yeah. But yeah. it's not one I've written. So let's assume just for the fact that the gospel is proclaimed in every societal structure and that the gospel could change society through the work of Christ But here's the point. Luther says this change isn't going to be coming about through force and demands. So what Luther is is arguing, at least what what we think Luther is arguing here, is that making a demand for freedom. Demand for freedom. Demand is a key word there. That's the key word. A demand for freedom in the light of the Christian association shows a lack of faith in the power of the gospel. So rather than the gospel bringing about freedom... In all of society, they're demanding through force what the gospel gives through gift. Right, right. And so there's this, that's at least when I was reading through Luther, I was trying yes. to understand this particular part because I really had trouble yeah. with this. It, it reminds me maybe of the struggle of uh, Central and South America and the, the liberation theology and what should happen through, say, uh, societal revolt. And can you use the language of the church to demand liberation of the people through force and saying this gun I'm firing, I'm doing so to bring about the freedom that the gospel says we have. Yeah. Is there, is there room in Luther's theology to use the gun to bring about freedom and to do so in such a way you're saying I'm doing the work of the gospel? I think Luther's making the point that nowhere can the gospel be used to by force and power bring about action. Right. And that's sort of how, that's what I walked away with after There can be this. freedom in l- land. There can be freedom from serfs. But don't do so by saying you're doing the work of the gospel. Yeah, don't, don't, and don't rebel. Uh, you know, using, and this is something he goes into is, you know, using force, using physical force, killing. Because that's really what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. You know, the, the peasants, and as this story continues, you're going to see there's going to be, you know, these peasants are going to be killing people. You know, this, this killing people for the sake and calling it for the sake of the gospel is a, you know, Luther has real problems with that. So Luther's going to bundle the rest of the articles together about usage of land for hunting and fishing, saying these just need to be resolved by lawyers. And then he's going to finish up this section with a reference to Thomas Munzer by essentially saying he knows who the puppet master is behind their document. And what he says is, I know well the false prophets who are among you. Do not listen to them. They are surely deceiving you. Now, the final section of admonition of peace that Luther writes has word to both sides. To the lords, he says, it is an established fact that you rule tyrannically and with rage, prohibit preaching of the gospel, cheat and oppress the poor. You have no reason to be confident or to hope that you will perish in any other way than you're kind of always perished. And to the peasants, he says, you are certainly under the wrath of God because you are doing wrong by judging your own case and avenging yourselves and are bearing the name of Christian unworthily. In short, God hates both tyrants and rebels. Therefore, he sets them against each other so that both parties perish shamefully and his wrath and judgment upon the godless are fulfilled. So Luther establishes uh, a, a way out, a way through this struggle. And 
two solutions uh, to these injuries. The first injury, he says, is neither side fights with a good conscience. Well, these are these are actually the two injuries. Oh, okay. There yes. are two injuries, and then he then says the solution, solution comes after. Yeah. That's right. So the first injury is neither side fights with a good conscience, but both fight to uphold injustice. It must follow in the first place that those who are slain are lost eternally, body and soul, as men who die in their sins without penitence and without grace under the wrath of God. What's the second injury, Mike? The second injury is that Germany will be laid waste. And if this bloodshed once starts, it will not stop until everything is destroyed. It is easy to start a fight, but we cannot stop the fighting whenever we want to. What have all these innocent women, children, and old people whom you fools are drawing with with you into such danger ever done to you? So th- this is where this this rebellion is is pulling in. It's taking over whole areas, and and there are many people, women, children, and elderly, who really have nothing want nothing to do with any of this. But their lives are being upended. They're 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 the ones, and they also end up, you know, they they're they're suffering mightily under this this. It's this. interesting that he mentions that Germany will be laid waste. Uh, at this time, each lord is going to think of his own little land, and whether you've got Saxony or the Palatinate or Hesse yeah. or any of these places, this concept that there is a Germany, that there is a. Un- a land that holds all of these people in common that's being injured is really Luther calling to a greater nobility than just a noble self-interest or a peasant's own little needs. He's calling to something a little bit more noble, the the notion of a, a land that's bigger than just your front door. Yeah, sort of uh, laying that vision for what comes about in the 1800s and the 1870s when Germany does finally become a united, uh, a united uh, kingdom. Now, the solution. This is what I was trying to get at earlier before I forgot about the injury. <laughs> so, the solution, Luther understands that the only solution is in the hands of the lords. He says, I therefore sincerely advise you to choose certain counts and lords from among the nobility and certain councilmen from the cities and ask them to arbitrate and settle this dispute amicably. He really hopes that there's some neutral noble that can speak wisdom. And, and there are. you know, But um, they don't speak up. Well, they, they, they aren't given that... They're never asked. They're they're not given the authority from the lords, and the peasants really are in the busy killing people. And the second solution he says is the peasants should stand down, and the lords should select the arbitrator. And so that seems like, and that's you know that seems like a reasonable you know let's go to negotiation, let's talk this through. But that just never happens. So n- neither side takes Luther's advice. The peasants never put down their weapons, and the lords never selected arbiters. So um, Luther's admonition is really making us question this role of social justice in Christian churches. And there can be some sympathy, I think, to any time the church is helping those who are oppressed. Yeah, I, I know I have often... This is actually, I grew up in the Catholic Church, uh, and especially so like in the Dorothy 70s, Day and In the 70s, the social justice thing was a big deal in the Catholic Church yeah. when I was growing up. And uh, so I, I was well-versed in Catholic social justice, um, and is it Dorothy Day? Is that who I'm thinking? I don't know. I have that name you know, wrong, I, maybe. But, um, you know, and I've always been sort of sympathetic to that. But this is this is a whole new way of looking at the role of... It's got me thinking about that. It's got me thinking about the Part whole... Part of this is, I think, Luther's view of the two kingdoms and how the kingdom of the law will sort itself out and the kingdom of gospel is here to bring about Christian freedom. And that when you use the gospel to try to bring order to the law then the gospel itself becomes now defined by the law. And and so his concern is not that 
justice doesn't matter, but that justice will be found through the working of the law. Okay. Okay. And, and that's why he's calling upon kind of the systems and structures in Germany that are already in place. Let's call on a noble and that sort of thing. And today, as you think about how churches go about works of mercy and compassion ministry and seek justice and political lobbying and things like that, there's always this question of how engaged does the church become in those events uh, to the point where the gospel is left behind. Luther points out that none of these 12 articles, though they call themselves a Christian association, have anything to say about the advancing of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the rescue from sin, death, and the devil. They are all political demands. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that, you know, like I said, I, I grew up in this, you know, steeped in the whole concept. And I was always a little... Now, I was comfortable with it, but I was uncomfortable with it. It was, mm-hmm. always seemed like one of these things that I was a little, um, uh, uh, just a little ambivalent about it. And, and now I'm, I'm sort yeah. of, uh, it's actually looking at this and actually reading through Luther's response to the Schwabian peasants uh, has, it's, it's introduced a new perspective that I never considered before. One way to put it into a modern context is to say uh, Selma, Alabama or Birmingham in the civil rights era uh, 1960s, and you've got uh, people traveling in, uh, all sorts of people traveling in uh, for protests, and you've got churches that are welcoming the protesters. And there were these questions of Lutheran churches, especially in my own church family history, not like my family family, but just as a Lutheran, uh, questions of some Lutheran churches kept their doors closed to housing protesters. And there were some churches that opened their doors so that those from the north had a place to rest and find sleep as they were helping with uh, voter registration and things like that. Okay. And the question is, you know, in a church, um, how much do you engage in, say, this process to bring about an end to injustice? And how much does your engagement start to mute or silence or eliminate your ability to preach the gospel? Or how much is it where your silence... Uh, you're, you're closing the doors prevents an opportunity to share the gospel. It, for me, it's that question of in what way does a church interact with the community it's around? I believe that the church should make a difference to the community it's in. But it's always that, I suppose, sticky question of when does the church become so engaged in the the societal change that it forgets about the spiritual change it's bringing? Yeah. Or is it that you become so engaged with the spiritual change that you leave someone naked and hungry and hungry and, and those things. And you go, no, no, I'm just doing the work of the gospel here. I can't give you anything to eat. This, uh, I think Luther doesn't give complete answers to this question in here, but he does point out first page caution. Before you get into the rest of the book of what the church should be doing in society, make sure that your gospel is the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. And, and don't, don't, don't lose the gospel to, to this concept of justice, you know, it's the, the justice doesn't overcome the gospel is sort of what I see yeah. what they're trying to get to here. Well, so here we end our episode. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to be talking about the story of Thomas Munzer, how he became the leader of the peasants in the revolution. And uh, we'll have a better understanding how his Prague manifesto theology functions in a real world. So thanks to Josh. And thanks to St. Paul Lutheran church in Hamburg, Michigan. 
Um, and then recognition of the source material. We have- so we got James Kittleson, uh, Luther the Reformer, uh, Christina Weingenen, uh, The Black Death, How It Affected Feudalism. We have uh, Luther's Works, Volume 46. So if you want to read The Admonition of Peace, you can go right to Volume 46. Yep, yep. And then, of course, Wikipedia was always helpful. Kind of nice for that just basic lane of a background sort of thing. Yep. You can contact us at graceontappperiodpodcast at gmail.com. That's an email address where you can uh, bring corrections to anything we've said, which you think may be mistaken or anything where you want to encourage us. You can also uh, catch us on our website, graceontap-podcast.com. Catch us on Facebook at Grace on Tap Podcast. Appreciate any reviews you can post on iTunes, even if you listen to this podcast on a different venue besides iTunes. If you do listen to it, could you go to iTunes and and give us a a good rating? And that helps us uh, show up in more trending and makes it easier for people to discover our podcast. Yeah, iTunes is the 500-pound gorilla when it comes to podcasts. So, Prost. Cheers. Prost. Prost.